Sometimes it takes a different approach to help you unlock your true potential. Capella University's game-changing FlexPath format helps you learn at your own pace and fit earning a degree into your life. From before you enroll to after you graduate, you'll be supported by people who are invested in your success so you can pursue your goals knowing that help is available if you need it. Imagine your future differently at capella.edu. Want the same expert advice you get from the pros in the store while shopping online at DiscountTire.com? Meet Treadwell, your personal online tire guide that matches you with the perfect tire for your vehicle. Get your best match in one minute or less with Treadwell by Discount Tire. This isn't your average business podcast, and he's not your average host. This is the James Altucher Show. This is the third week, and it's completely unpredictable what happened. Like, my kids got it, and there was no symptoms. My friends got it, there was no symptoms. Robin spent five days in the hospital. I've been, like, I'm better than I was at my worst. At my worst, I would have killed myself if someone gave me a gun. How are you, Brandon? I haven't talked to you in forever. How are you doing? I'm pretty good. Yeah, I'm in Portugal right now. I've been kind of gallivanting around Europe with my vaccine. (laughs) Oh, because you could travel anywhere with with the vaccine passport, right? It's like the golden ticket. Yeah, it just opens up everything. I did not get vaccinated, but everybody then thinks, like the first question people ask when they, because I posted on Instagram, I had COVID. And the first question, nobody asked like, hey, how you doing? People asked, um, oh, you, you said, you know, be better and stuff. But, you know, most people said, did you get vaccinated? And... <laughs> If I said, I didn't, I didn't say anything. Yeah. Yeah, And and I didn't say anything, but, uh, but that assumed that no, correctly. No. And then they assumed, okay, well you must be a racist then. Or where were you January 6th? (laughs) Like, and, and it's as if it's interesting, the level people think that most of our decisions are rational and based on a philosophy and are thought out, like I was simply lazy. I spend all day in my office. I don't really see people that much. I've been exposed to COVID a billion times and I never got it. So I was just lazy and I didn't get it. Yeah, that's funny. Yeah. I wasn't a racist. (laughs) (laughs) America is a funny place these days. So what is is traveling around Europe giving you a perspective on America? Like what's we're going to talk about your book of course, which yeah. is excellent. It's the it's the Navy Jack Reacher. Uh yeah. but uh tell me what's been going on in your life. I mean, I sold Crate Club in the pandemic, my e-commerce business. Um oh, t- good or bad? Was it a good deal? Yeah, I mean, look, I I got it was a nice seven-figure deal. I didn't pay any tax on the transaction, so I'm happy. I and I needed to sell, like the business was in trouble. Our supply chain got hit. So I sold to a competitor. Um, so a big monkey off my back and I got a nice exit. So I'm, I'm running soft rep and maybe turn it over to my COO to run at the end of the year. And then I'm maybe do something else The maybe the, if this series takes off, cause we sold steel fear to Peacock, which is NBC universal's streaming network. Uh, if that turns into a bigger franchise, maybe that's something I lean into and just just do that. But I'm tossing around a few startup ideas as well. Can you say any of the startup ideas? Yeah. So my two front runners right now is um, I, I own hotlaces.com. So I was thinking about branding shoelaces the same way that Beats branded headphones um, and, you know, Stance did for socks. But Imagine like super high end, like LeBron shoelace or Lady Gaga shoelace. Um, so that's kind of an idea. You, and you know what's trending, by the way? We had, we did a podcast about this uh, vegan tennis shoes or vegan sneakers. So if it's like organic materials, yeah. but still the cool look, that's exactly. like the hot thing. Yeah. Yeah. And then the other thing, totally different, is I have this idea to make essentially a pocket therapist so imagine like that movie her but you have an ai based like take the best minds in psychology 
and teach the AI to respond to, to the FAQ, right? And then it just gets smarter and smarter and you have this little pocket therapist because mental health is big these days. I love it. But if you use something like GPT-3, you can't, te- you can't le- um, teach it with a uh, uh, knowledge base that large is the problem. Yeah, I don't, I don't know how it would work yet, but it was just a, it's an idea that's floating around my head because. Well, I'd be happy to talk to you about that one. I have some interest in, in that area, both on the uh, online therapy side and the uh, AI side. I would love to talk to you about it because I, as you know, not all therapists are created equally. Believe me, I know. Yeah, same with me. So I, I think, you know, having a, a AI-based resource like that would be, be pretty powerful. And in general, things okay? Like your life good, everything? Yeah, life, actually, life is pretty damn good. My kids are doing great. Hunter finished his first year at St. Andrews. He's a machine learning psychology major in Scotland. Um, he's doing a crypto startup with his buddies. Um, so, yeah, and other son and daughter doing great. I fell in love with some woman in Capri, Italy, this over in Europe. So it's like a new thing, which is kind of cool. And she's traveling with you? Um, she came from uh, Zurich to stay with me in Libsyn. She's out at the getting her hair done right now. We're having a fancy dinner tonight. So Brandon, you just came out with a novel, Steel Fear, you and uh, co-author John David Mann. Yep. And Brandon, you're getting to the point where you're almost writing as many books as me. <laughs> so you have Steel Fear, Red, The Red Circle, The Making of a Navy Seal, The Killing School. Most of these are nonfiction. Steel Fear is your yep. first like novel. Uh, the, the Red Circle, The Making of a Navy Seal, The Killing School, which talks about your experiences teaching the sniper school for the Navy SEALs, Mastering Fear, a Navy SEALs guide. That Mastering Fear is, Kamal told me to write that book when I taught him how to swim in New York. Oh yeah, yeah, that's right. You taught him how to swim. He was terrified of, of swimming. There's lots of things in life that are, for some people are easy, but for some people, for whatever reason, it triggers something really deep in them and they're terrified about it. And of course, in the field of battle, that's gonna, you're going to find out about yourself in a pretty harsh way, right when you don't want to find out about yourself. And so mastering fear, you need to know how to do it before you're afraid of something. And it was an excellent book. We did a podcast about it. Since podcast number one, you've been telling me you want to write a novel. You've been telling me you want to write a novel specifically about an experience you had on uh, you know, a Navy ship. Uh, you told me how you were going to write the novel. How come you didn't call me before this novel came out? <laughs> I had to just see it on Amazon. You know what? I think it's it's because of all the shit that's going on in the world. <laughs> I just i I got it done, and then I was like, "Oh God, I gotta I gotta like reach out to my friends and then tell them about the book." So, and a novel is very different promotional. Yes, I rarely have novelists on. Yeah, which the cool thing is, the novel is based off a lot of true events, and I think maybe you agree like there's you could teach a leadership course off this book based on the the bad leadership of the aircraft carrier captain eagleberg not only the bad the bad leadership of the captain but finn and again finn is kind of like those jack reacher style characters like he's got his own code of values he's a little bit of a dark horse you don't really know what he's thinking or feeling. He's had these experiences that I I won't get into, but he's had these experiences that have uh, really developed his character and his code of values. And he's very observational. So he looks at people and decides if they, and I might be describing wrong, but he kind of looks to see if they share his code of values. And and if not, then how it's different. And then he uses that to assess how he's going to act them. He's, He's almost a little bit more thoughtful than Jack Reacher, I would say. You know, Jack Reacher is a famous Lee Child uh, character that is that kind of ex-military big guy who wanders into problems, uh, like Finn yeah. does here on the on the ship. But um, yeah. but yeah, I think there's a lot to be learned. That's why I think this would be a great character, a great TV character. But uh, what I'm excited about too is, you know, you're not a novelist, but you wrote 
basically a best-selling novel that now you're talking to, you're selling the option of film rights to NBC and TV show rights and all this stuff. And let's talk process first. Like someone's listening to this saying, well, I'm not a writer. I can't write a novel. How did you write this? And congratulations, because it's an excellent book. It's a page turner and you do my favorite thing, which I think every novelist should learn from, short chapters. Damn it, you guys with MFAs, you got your goddamn master's degree and you think you know how to write <laughs> and you write these 30 page chapters about someone's flashback to when their mother beat them and we don't give a shit and I gotta wait 30 pages and then there's no cliffhanger <laughs> at the end. We just go back to reality, present day. Like yeah. short chapters, cliffhanger at the end of every chapter. If you don't do anything else, just do that and you'll write a good book. Okay, sorry, Brandon, go ahead. No, no, it's all true. It's in all stuff I had to learn, especially character development. Uh, I was in a private talk with Alan Loeb on on uh, Clubhouse, and we were talking character development. You just can't get lazy on character development. You got to give them a thing. You got to make them interesting. Well, well, actually, let, let's let's talk about this because uh, I'm going to take notes. I always consider writing to be there's no such skill as oh, I am a good writer. Like there are a lot of micro skills. So one micro skill is plotting. Another micro skill yeah. is uh, characterization. Another micro skill is world building. You have to kind of like flesh out the world that your character exists in. Obviously another micro skill is dialogue. That's very important. Another micro yeah. skill is understanding what perspective you're gonna use. Is it first person, second person, third person, third person omniscient? Uh, you know, these are all the, you know, and there's a, there's a bunch more. There's also your use of language, there's cliffhangers. There are micro yeah. skills to the micro skills, but okay, let's talk about what you learned. So what I would say character development is you can't, you can't get lazy and just kind of plug a hole with a name and, and be vague about a, a, a character in the book, because even if they have a small role, you have to, you still have to like put in the work and, and, and build out the character and do it in a way that's not going to drone on. Like you said earlier, nobody wants to read a, you know, massive chapter just on one person's, you know, life story. But on the process side, I started writing this book and I got about 20,000 words in and it was extremely tough because first novel, I can write nonfiction all day long, but inventing the story which even even though it was based on real events so when i was before i was a navy seal i was stationed uh, on board the abraham lincoln uh where steel fear takes place as a rescue swimmer helicopter crewman we had a sexual predator on the boat he assaulted six seven women they never caught the guy and it gave me this idea for this serial killer uh and so years later uh, I, I read Stephen King's On Writing. I watched a couple of the masterclass um, authors and- Which ones? And I, you know what, I have, I'm, I'm, as soon as I said it, I was like- James Shit, Patterson's the hell got a good one. No, Patterson, I watched uh, Patterson and there was, there was another woman, I forget her name. But the, the process of writing fiction is very different. So then I started getting up in New York, writing at five in the morning and just boom, writing. Like Stephen King said, just put your ass in the seat and start writing. Uh, and the characters were kind of coming to life because that's my style. Then I got to a point where I'm, I'm running this e-commerce business and my media company and finishing nonfiction books. And I called up John and I said, uh, who's also prolific nonfiction writer. And I said, do you want to collaborate on this? Because John, to your point about the different micro skill sets, John and I have very complementary complementary skill sets. I'm detail oriented. Uh, I am very good at plot. John is incredible at character development, uh, world building. I'm good at dialogue. John's good at dialogue. So we have these overlaps, and then we we kind of fill in on strength and weakness. Like I wrote most of the the murder scenes and I'm writing the fight scenes right now for book two, which is cold fear, uh, takes place in Iceland. Uh, but it's, it's very fun, but it's a lot, a lot of work. And it's not like a nonfiction book where you can just sell a 
sell the concept to a publisher off a one-page proposal. You have to finish the damn thing. and Right, like a novel is this almost the stupidest activity one can do, which is you have to write the entire thing <laughs> yeah. before you know if you're gonna even one per if, if even one person wants to read it. You might be, yeah. in the nineties when I was just learning my own set of skills for writing, I wrote four novels and about fifty short stories. All were horrible because you have to get through that phase <laughs> too. Yeah. And it's hard. Like you have like like you said, you have to sit down and there's a billion books out there. It's very competitive. You're not just writing it for art. You're writing it because you're competing with every other. You, someone's either going to read your book or another. They're not going to read two books at the same time. So it's 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 a difficult skill, and it's and it gets harder all the time. And I, I want to add, you wrote a, a a genre book, like we refer, we've referred to James Patterson and Lee Child. These are genre writers, um, very specific type of genre. You wrote a thriller, and people sometimes have a bad feeling about thrillers, but I find, or I'm not thrillers, genre books in general, but I find genre books to be just as literary as any other book, if they're good. It's just that the language might be a little simpler and, and that's fine cross, because it's not about the language. Yeah, we do cross into kind of, and it's kind of like a blend of if Tom Clancy and Agatha Christie had a baby, this is what the book is. Cause it is cross genre a little bit, but yeah, I agree with you. And look, I wrote a blog about, I read this New York Times review on John Mayer's new album. I'm a big John Mayer fan. It's, and this guy was ripping him to shreds because it wasn't this like revolution, revelationary piece of work. I'm like, it's simple. I like simple. It's why I love Steinbeck. It's like, keep it simple. It makes you feel good. And sometimes that's okay. <laughs> I don't know if you've heard of something called the, uh, the Fisher Kincaid score. Have you ever heard of this? No. So, so what it is, is it's a score that you feed it. Like there's, there's Fisher Kincaid calculators on the web and you feed it a, an article or a book or a story. And it will tell you at what grade level the, the article was written or the book was written. So for instance, I fed in old man in the sea, the book, which arguably, you know, clinched was the tipping point for Ernest Hemingway winning the Nobel prize in literature. And if I remember correctly, that was written at a fourth grade level. <laughs> And yeah, people don't go. realize the best literature out there is readable. You got to read yeah. it. And then yeah. one time I was working with an entrepreneur and he was showing me his business summary and I put it into the Fisher Kincaid calculator. It came out at an 18th grade level. And I'm like, man, this, you can't, I can't understand this. And I went to graduate school. I can't understand this. And yeah. some people want to act smart, but you have to take that impulse away. You have to write simply, like you said, and, and this book is very readable. Thanks. Yeah. And, and probably the biggest challenge for John and I was describing this complex aircraft carrier environment, which is three Empire State Buildings next to each other. That's how big the ship is. It's That's a floating city. Yeah, it's a floating city. How many people uh, work so, on it? Uh, I think close to 6,000. And true story, we mentioned this in the book, there was a time where two brothers were stationed on the same aircraft carrier for six months and never saw each other while the, while the ship was at sea. It was just like so big. They never ran into that, each other. Six that months. happens even with me and my kids in the same house. Yeah. <laughs> so, yeah. Not that um, that was but, so big as I just stay here to a podcast. Tell me about plotting because obviously to plot a thriller is difficult. Like there's a handful of people in the world who could do it. And you guys, I was impressed. Like you guys did a really good job. So what, what is plotting? What was the, your process here? How do you write a thriller? What's the difference between a thriller and like a mystery? Well, I mean, this has a lot of mystery to it, right? It's, it's kind of a lost yes. room. Mystery, that's, that's why it's cross genre. Yeah. Yeah. That's that exactly. So, you know, w the important thing was, okay, we have, how do we build this environment, this world of the aircraft carrier, the main plot being there's this killer on the loose and nobody knows who it is. And there's multiple suspects. I mean, even the hero, which I'll try not to give any spoilers, but, but Finn is, is the hero. He even thinks it's himself because he has these memory lapses, right? So right up to the end, I think we do a really good job kind of pointing the finger at multiple suspects. Can I ask you a question? And I'm, I'm sorry to interrupt. So yeah. would you say that's um, 
a consequence. Obviously, this happens a lot in in thrillers and mysteries. Let's just say they're one big genre that you you know. Like I'm just thinking, even back to Scooby Doo, you always think it's one guy, and it turns out to be Mr. <laughs> Jenkins all along, like the nice guy you never would have yeah. suspected. And I like how in this one, even the main character is not 100% sure it isn't him. Like yeah, that was, exactly. you always want to find, I always describe it like a phone. The iPhone is 99.999% like every other phone built since 1957. But it also now has music and movies and games and apps and stuff like that. So you, you keep the structure, but then there's the famous Steve Jobs and there's one more thing. So it's like yeah. you keep the structure as much as you can, but then you add one more thing. So that's, so people who are pro proficient in reading the genre say, oh, this is new. I'm, I want to see how this turns out. Yeah. And so that, that was like the original plot mountain was this, you know, how this hero's journey to catch the killer and that happening. And then that you, to build more tension, you, you know, we wanted to make this situation where the, the aircraft carriers in the Persian Gulf, there's a situation with Iran happening. So then you have this like outside tension building and the, and then the captain in the careerism, he's like, okay, I, I don't want to, I don't want to, I'm trying to like keep this hidden so I can deal with it internally because I don't want it to get out to the bigger uh, department of defense. Cause he's worried about his career and then all this other stuff happening with Iran and, um, a quick sidebar, I was blown away when, so we sold the rights to Peacock and I was, Ben Smith is producing the, the, the TV series. He did all the Jason Bourne movies. Oh my gosh. The, I the, love those. This, I do too. The, the studio was like, you guys have to replace Iran. It's kind of, Middle East is worn out. And I was like, okay, well, we'll just sub in China. Like that's an easy one. Oh, we can't touch China. Ben was like, Nobody can touch China and Hollywood. They have too much money on the table. Like crazy shit. I was like, are you kidding me? Yeah, I mean, the NBA is screwed because like one basketball player stood up for what he believed in and now basketball can't be seen in China. It's crazy, yeah. Which I don't think, I, I know one of my, uh, I'm in the Young Presidents organization. One of my friends is involved in the NBA. He said that a typical like, LeBron Lakers game on a Thursday, Friday night will draw, you know, uh, uh, like say one to 2 million it, the next morning in China, it's like 9 million viewers. So it's a wow. big thing. Like it's basketball in China is massive, but they have so much leverage. It's just, it's a little bit, you know, it, it's, it used to be, you couldn't do anything like, um, bad against the the jewish community now now it's china you know in hollywood it's just kind of crazy the way so it works. funny uh so so yeah so so but plotting though seems like how do you how do you do it how do you say that there's multiple suspects without people saying i know what he's doing he's just trying to show us it's not really this guy he's trying to make us think it's this guy like it seems easy to fall into that trap yeah i think that's where you know, you have to have very interesting, believable character development. And, and I think we do that. And and then you kind of, you know who it is, all, at least we did. We knew who it was all along. Um, so it's, you know, it, it just worked out. Like, I don't know how to, how to explain it. it. And a lot of it, you know, I would say I did the plot development that I got the story going John, I, I had the serial killer because it was based off of my real experience. John did a great job with Finn, like developing the character Finn, which I think is super interesting. And thanks to John, we now have a series because, you know, Finn lives on. Uh, we're already about to finish book two. Um, How deep did you go into into backstory with Finn when you were developing the character? Like, and when I say you, I'm referring to both of you guys. Yeah. Um, did, did you... Was there stuff in the backstory that you had written down that never made it into the book, but could appear in future books? Yes. Yes. That was, it's, I'm glad you brought that up because one of the things also that I learned in this process, um, Anne Spire and her boss at, at Random House bought the book. Um, they did the Game of Thrones books, by the way. Um, 
she Man, was you're hitting, you're hitting every like magic button yeah well she was an incredible collaborator she said look guys you got to pick up the pace sooner you need to get things moving in the in the first part and then she said you need to pull this stuff about Finn out and push it to the book to the maybe book two book three so like get the reader hooked and interested in Finn's backstory but don't spill the beans because you know of having read the book there's certain things that are left out of Finn's backstory you're like shit I really want to know like what happened in his childhood that's influencing this kind of behavior so we kind of have a plan to deal with that in book three to kind of fill in that the rest of Finn's backstory to kind of keep keep readers on their toes and give them a reason to you know give them something to look forward to yeah no i i like that and that's again similar to a lot of these other like jason Bourne is a great example where his backstory is unraveled through i believe about five different movies like you get more even in the movie he doesn't appear you get more of his backstory you know, but it's interesting that she, that Anne, your editor, said um, move some of the action closer to the front because yeah. you start off with some backstory about the Abraham Lincoln, which was interesting and it kind of the issues with women and things like that and and this character, the character Monica, um, and Finn is just sort of arriving, like he's in there and after you know a couple of these again short chapters, but you know some some books start off like some John Grisham books might start off where someone is killed in the first two pages and that sets the scene. So yeah. uh, did you debate starting with Finn? And again, yeah. he's there early enough. I'm not, it's not well, like you didn't start with Finn, but. We, when I actually, when I first wrote the first draft, I started immediately with the murder scene. Like, but we realized that there wasn't enough backstory. Cause part of, as you know, writing, any any piece of work you have to have a complete plot mountain right you need background conflict rising action uh resolution um and if you're missing any of those things you have an incomplete narrative and, and we've all watched the movies or read those crappy articles or books where we're like really this isn't going anywhere like is it gonna end like so you know we realized we had to provide some background especially for somebody that's not familiar with the aircraft carrier environment i couldn't jump right into the scene on the outside of the ship sponson and and the and the killer kind of going to town on his victim um or her victim uh, but that what, what what about low like uh maybe i mean the way you did it was perfect. I'm not, this is not anything. I was just, I, I always just think about these choices and I'm always amazed when, and you made very good choices. So I always am just curious about the process. Like, you know, Finn has this backstory where it's a little bit, he's a little bit shamed, right? So he's, he's on yeah. Abraham Lincoln for, for a reason. Um, did you think about starting with that or him kind of approaching the Abraham Lincoln or? You know what, it's, uh, it, it really was a case where, you know, we decided to, to push the murder scene out and we wanted to tell the story of Monica. Monica is a very powerful character. She shows up in, in, in the other books as well. Um, so we want, and look, it's part of me writing this book was portraying like the reality of military life. Like it's mixed race, it's mixed sex. It's, it's this mash of people together, working together, doing their jobs. And, and we have very strong characters you know, across gender, sexual preference, um, the whole thing. And it was important for me. I wanted to kind of show people that, uh, look, Monica's, I, I think, a great lead-in character. We wanted to build some background yeah. leading into the aircraft carrier. But look, book two, Cold Fear, the first scene, which is at the end of the book, we, we write, we give a, a chapter at the end of the book, kind of a sneak peek it starts off right away. This woman running barefoot in Iceland with a gown and she slips herself into the pond. And the next morning, some girl sees this woman staring up at her frozen, dead and frozen in this pond in, in Reykjavik, Iceland. That's a hook, man. Like you're like, holy shit. Like what's, I want to know like what just happened. You know? <laughs> so, um, you know, I do like those early, just grab, grab them with something, you know, pretty shocking and, and, and 
where they become very reader becomes very inquisitive because that I think important to hook them. Yes, it's totally true. Airbnb has changed my life. If anything, they have made my life so much better. Like I used to live in Airbnbs. I I lived in over a hundred or 200 different Airbnbs over a three year period. And I loved it. I love, I became a really good guest of Airbnbs and I got to know lots of hosts. So when I initially owned a house, I, of course, the first thing I thought was I'm going to turn my house into an Airbnb because I travel a lot. So why leave my house unused when I can make a side income by letting others Airbnb my house or come to stay in my house as guests and having my own Airbnb or or being a host for Airbnb has allowed me to do just that. And I've met other hosts. I've actually spoken at Airbnb's host conference. I think it was in 2017. I met so many just nice hosts. It's a great community. And I love, you know, turning my own home into an Airbnb. Like I'm traveling to Austin next month. My home's going to be an Airbnb while I'm away and I'll stay in an Airbnb. I'd rather stay in like a three-story house Airbnb than in one tiny hotel room in, in the middle of Austin during South by Southwest. So listen, while you're away, your home could be an Airbnb. Many people host on Airbnb, but there are people who are just letting their house sit empty, who've never thought about it or didn't realize their space could be an Airbnb. Hosting can easily fit into your lifestyle and is a great way to earn some extra money. So if you have a home, but you're not always at home, then you have an Airbnb. Your home might be worth more than you think. Find out how much at airbnb.com slash host. Daylight savings time is starting up again. Okay, podcast is over. That's all you needed to know. But why do we have uh, daylight savings time? Answer, to give us more daylight from March through November. By setting your clocks forward, it may feel like there are more hours in the day that initial, when we initially start daylight savings. But if you're hiring, it doesn't necessarily help you find qualified candidates for your roles any sooner. There's only one way to do that, ZipRecruiter. And right now you can try it for free at ZipRecruiter.com slash James. ZipRecruiter works around the clock to find qualified candidates for you. Once you post your job on ZipRecruiter, they send it to 100 plus job sites so you reach more of the right people. This is such a brilliant idea for a business and ZipRecruiter did it. So ZipRecruiter's smart technology also quickly scans thousands of resumes to identify people whose skills and experience match your job. I've used ZipRecruiter particularly as a potential employee and I still to this day get messages every day. James Aldacher, would you like to apply to be VP of entertainment at NBC or whatever? So there's just nonstop emails. Like I got five or six emails today because of because a year ago I signed up for ZipRecruiter. So spring forward with a new hiring partner, ZipRecruiter, and find top talent sooner. See why four out of five employers who post on ZipRecruiter get a quality candidate within the first day. Just go to this exclusive web address to try ZipRecruiter for free. ZipRecruiter.com slash James. Once again, that's ZipRecruiter.com slash James. ZipRecruiter, the smartest way to hire. Hey, listen, men's health is important. Men act all cocky and like they don't need anything. But the reality is, as you get older, there's some things you need. And it often feels like we're too busy to take care of our health problems. Like I'd rather do anything than go to the doctor or the dentist or the pharmacy or whatever. But now you don't have to waste your time if you use HIMS. HIMS, H-I-M-S, HIMS is changing men's health care by providing simple and convenient access to science-backed treatments for erectile dysfunction, hair loss, weight loss, and more. The entire process is 100% online, so you get a new routine of improving your overall health faster. Jay, you listening to all this? Yes, i definitely going to use HIMS from now Not on. Not that you need it. You're, you're young and healthy. James, I'm 35. You, you're getting there. You might, you might need it. Who knows? 
But if prescribed, your medication ships directly to you for free and indiscreet packaging. No insurance is needed. You can manage your plan on the Hims app, track progress, and learn more about your conditions and how to treat them from leading medical experts. Start your free online visit today at hymns.com slash James. Could you imagine that? There's a whole section just with my name on it. Hymns.com slash James. That's how I how much I am representative of the kind of person who needs hymns. That's HIMS.com slash James for your personalized treatment options. Hymns.com slash James. Prescriptions require an online consultation with a healthcare provider who will determine if appropriate. Restrictions apply. See hymns.com slash James for details and important safety information. Subscription required. Price varies based on product and subscription plan. I'm always fascinated with the twist. Every good thriller or even every good genre novel needs a twist, something yeah. unexpected in the middle that you just didn't, the reader didn't see coming. But I always feel like it's hard to fool the reader. The reader is not stupid. So what were you thinking of when, when it comes to how to write a twist or what was John thinking of? You know, um, and look, I, I want to give credit to John. John is a super interesting guy. He was a, um, professional musician he was he played the cello um he composed music his i think his dad was also a composer so he's great at at kind of building tempo that like a song right where you're slowly kind of building up to something and then boom you take it down a notch um but to answer your question i i think our goal was to go very deep into each character to make them, even the flawed ones are, are I think, a little bit likable, build out this complex environment. And, and look, it, like I said, it, it's a massive ship, all this stuff going on. And I think we do a pretty good job of, of that. And I got John on the ship. I got him a, a, a pass to go on the Abraham Lincoln. He got a full tour because wow. I thought there's no way he can understand this without being on this like massive carrier and he actually got on the Lincoln itself. So um, that, that I think was a, an important part, but you know, we have a, a ton of interesting characters mashed together. And, and I, I love the scene where or the chapter where they're talking about the suspects and they're like, yeah, we've, we've got it down to like, you know, 3,940. <laughs> They're like, holy shit, like that's that's on like a list of possible people that could have done this based on their like work routine and their and their hours and stuff like that. So um, I think that, you know, it's not like that game Clue, right, where you have five people. You have all sorts of like scenarios and probability. And I think that helped us create this situation where readers were kind of guessing like could, because it could have been anybody. Right. It could have been someone we didn't even talk about the entire story that could have just like appeared at the end. Um, but I do like, you know, one of, we get people very familiar with who it is and, and it's a, I think a very big kind of reveal at the end. Um, so I think we, I think we did a good job. And to be honest, like Brad Thor, Lee Child, these guys went out of their way to give us not only amazing quotes, but wrote us separately and said, guys, you did a great freaking job here. And I'll tell you this, writing in the sealed nonfiction category, it's dog eat dog, man. Like nobody wants to help you cooperate. It's like, everybody's like fighting for the top, right? Top seal book. This is a very cool thing to kind of get into this thriller genre and have the other writers embrace us and, and really help us out. That, that was a huge surprise to me as well. How did you get introduced to all of them? I mean, it's, it's having a good network, as, as you know, you know, through, yeah. through our editor, um, reaching out the blue check helps, you know, on Twitter and Instagram, reaching out to these folks. I tried to get Karen Slaughter. I'm a, I'm a fan of hers, but she was too busy. Talk about the arc of the hero in a thriller. Like what, what do you, what are you thinking about with the arc of the hero and, and when you're mapping it out and, and what is specific to a thriller? So, I mean, I can only guess, talk about our book because it's a, it's the first time for me. But 
we felt it was important to make Finn memorable. You know, Finn, no last name, that just sticks with you. Um, you know, he has a very, you know, he's a very kind of flawed hero. And I think a lot of people can identify with him and, and, and like him uh, for that because, because we're all flawed as humans. We all have these flaws we carry around. I mean, look at, look at what Como's dealing with lately. Uh, but, uh, you know, it, it's, I think John and I felt that we wanted to, you know, also this is a lot of based on even my own struggles, right? Like in the, in the SEAL community with going to war, dealing with like PTSD and everything that happens there, like childhood trauma, all this stuff were like a lot of these characters, including the captain of the ship, Monica, Kennedy, um, Harris, the crewman, they're based on real life people that I served with. How much was Finn based on you or, or your background? I mean, John based a lot of Finn's childhood, you know, growing up in in the ocean on on me. But there's a lot of other stuff in there too that that's not related to me. But John did draw a lot on on uh, myself and other characters. I you know we wrote the book Among Heroes together, which is kind of a, a tribute to my my friends that I serve with that that died in in the war. Mm-hmm. Um, that book was tough tough to write write a, sure. a book about your dead friends but we did a, i think a great job in in showing like the the incredible traits that each one of those guys had so that there's some of that in there as well in Finn i think there's a lot of Glenn Doherty uh in Finn who was who was uh, a best friend of mine that that died in Benghazi Libya uh, rescuing the or rescuing the state department guys uh, when ambassador Stevens got killed what happened to him uh, he was working for the CIA, and he, him and a, the group, against orders, the chief of base in Benghazi for CIA didn't want to rescue the or help the State Department guys, and they said, no, we're going anyway. So they went in and rescued everybody, and unfortunately, the ambassador, uh, because they lit fire to the compound, he suffocated and, and died, but they got everybody out, and um, they got back to the CIA compound then the kind of angry mob slowly started to build outside the CIA compound and they started lobbing mortars over and, and they, they put a mortar right on the rooftop where Glenn was set up as a, as a, with a sniper position and he was killed instantly. Uh, so, but, you know, um, it, it was fun kind of taking all this real life experience and, and, putting it into, into the book, right? And some characters, um, the killer is like a combo of two people I actually know. Um, so it, it, that part was fun. How do they feel about being, you know, you didn't tell know. me you modeled a killer yeah. after me, but like, no, I don't, don't know, know how I feel about that. <laughs> yeah, yeah. They, <laughs> do yeah, you really think I would do that? that. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, yeah. I would tell you this, cause you're, you know, you're a best-selling author too. It, it's a very, I find fiction super fun because you can just make shit up. You know, like, oh, just like give them this, you know. So it is fun. I guess there's some points where it's good to kind of go in a direction and see where it takes you. And there's other times where you kind of have to really stick to the next beat in the plot. And there's a lot of, you know, discussion of that among fiction writers. I'm, I'm, like I said, when I first started writing, I wrote horrible novels. Now I'm trying to write a real professionally done novel. And it's it's definitely, you know, after writing so many nonfiction books, it's definitely an interesting, and a lot of my nonfiction is storytelling, just as yours is. So yeah. it's, it's interesting to kind of take that narrative nonfiction style and turn it into into fiction, which many novels are. Like you said, there's yeah. many components of this book that are that are real. You look at like someone like Charles Bukowski or James Fry, everything they write is basically nonfiction, but they call it a novel and they change all the names. So, yeah, you know, exactly. Charles Bukowski more than Fry, but, uh, even so, our friend Kamal's book, Rebirth, right? Like that's based. Oh yeah. Rebirth his, is totally a nonfiction book, but it's <laughs> yeah. a novel. Yeah. And it's a great novel. Yeah. Um, it is. It is. So, so, uh, if someone's listening to this, 
and let's say they have an idea. Everybody always says, oh, I have an idea for a story. I'll, I'll let you write it and I'll cut you in. But like, seriously, if someone has an idea for a story, what would be the steps they should take? And let's say they're not a writer. So let, let's acknowledge yeah. that writing is a, is a skill. It's a hard skill. It takes years to learn. Um, there, what's, I want to figure out kind of the skip the line version of this. Like, yeah, what could someone do like you to write a novel and maybe even turn into a best-selling novel on a TV series and everything? So look, I think it's a good point that you bring up because like people, some people are great storytellers, but they're not good writers. So if you're a great storyteller, you just have to find a collaborator and there are, are groups out there. I, I think one of the sites like Upwork, you can find writers with really good track records that will write for fee fee based, right? Like John's built a career doing that. He's, he's very expensive now. And, and now I, I, I hopefully he'll transition into this full time, but he was getting paid lots of money to write, write books for people. But there, there are fee based great writers, best-selling writers out there that you can, you know, pay probably 15 to $20,000 to develop a story that that you want to tell and end up with a pretty pretty solid product so that's that's one way to go about it the thing also that i that i did want to mention in this book was when i talked about how it could be a leader you could teach a leadership course this is based off of my two experiences i was on the abraham lincoln and then i went and did a deployment as a search and rescue swimmer helicopter crewman on the kitty hawk the kitty hawk when I was going to the Kitty Hawk, I'm like, great, I'm going to this. I just came off this big nuclear powered modern day aircraft carrier. Now I'm going to this like old conventional uh, power plant. It's a smaller carrier and it's gonna be crappy. It was way better than the Lincoln. And it was because the Lincoln or the uh, Kitty Hawk had an amazing captain. The captain talked to everybody over the, we call it the one MC, it's the like broadcast speaker for the whole ship. He would communicate with the crew. Hey guys, this is what's happening. This is our plan. We're going to go here. And this is, you know, what, what's going to happen with the day and the ship and all these different port calls. And the crew was happy. It was a totally better experience. And then back to the Lincoln, we had the worst accident rate in the fleet. We lost a jet um, and, and a female pilot dead at sea. We had a collision at sea. I think the captain came over the one MC one time during the entire six month deployment. So this was, and I'm a huge Ayn Rand fan. And so I was like, I want to put some leadership philosophy into this novel. And I think you could teach a leadership course off steel fear because it's, it's a clear example of bad leadership and the effects that it has and and the opposite, it shows some very good leadership qualities in, in one of the main characters, Monica, for instance. But what's interesting though is it doesn't, like a lot of times people write a novel with the idea in mind, this is really gonna be a, um, what do you call it when it's a story? Uh, this is really gonna be about leadership, but I'm gonna put it in the clothing of a yeah. novel. But this doesn't feel like that. It doesn't, like, just like, you know, I've seen books written, you know, the the leadership skills of Don Draper. So it analyzes every episode of Mad Men and shows how <laughs> Don, you know, Don Draper's leadership philosophy or his philosophy of life. This doesn't feel like that. This feels like a, a novel and you just ha happen, just like these books about The Sopranos or Don Draper, you just happen yeah. to get leadership uh, lessons out of it. But that's interesting though, which is that it's not about the leadership, it's about the characterization where you saw different things in your experience as a leader or as a, a learner or as a trainee or a trainer or whatever. And you built that into some characters. So that's how you gave the lessons rather than force feeding certain yeah. pieces of knowledge on some characters. So it's more just a, whatever this word is I'm searching for. It's an allegory, I think yeah. it is, is what it's called. So the, the thing also was that the, the, the captain of the Abraham Lincoln, Eagleburg, his style of leadership allowed, like the killer is able to flourish in that environment. And so that's, you know, that that's part of it for sure. In the same way that 
this pervert was running around on the Lincoln when I was serving molesting women and they never caught him. Like, it just still baffles me that, and there's look, the, there's no FBI on an aircraft carrier, but come on guys, like, let's, let's like catch this guy. And, and they just never caught him. And the women were terrified. So, and, and it was because this environment existed where the captain didn't give a shit. It was all about him. Well, yeah, that, that I think, I mean, we, we could get into a little bit of leadership here, but just, but like from reading your book, it seems like there's, there's two or three main things. One is you, you, you just like in Victor Frankl's man's search for meaning, a leader needs meaning that includes the entire set of constituencies or groups that he or she is leading. So if you're an entrepreneur, for instance, your meaning needs to, and, and, and you derive your leadership from, from the, the meaning you, you infuse into yourself and your business, your meaning includes the value you're delivering to customers, to your employees, to your shareholders, to your investors and, and, and so on. And it seems like the ship's captain needs to include the people working on the ship needs to yeah. include the United States of America. Cause it's a military ship needs to include the world because the United States, whether they it's true or not, the United States feels that they are the police of the world, but there's different philosophies to that. So your, your meaning and leadership there needs to, so you need to have meaning in leadership. And then the other thing I've, I've noticed in, in the book, you need, um, you need to communicate to people. You need you need to give yeah. people uh, a reason. Not that they you don't want to be best friends with everybody, but you need to show that you're just as active as they are. You don't want anyone talking behind your back saying, "Man, if only the captain would sweep these decks like me." Like <laughs> you don't want that's that's what I call the disease, and the disease yeah. spreads really fast when people start talking about you on their smoking breaks or whatever. Oh, yeah. And the third thing is, and this I don't know. And maybe you could help me from your ex- experience in the military. How important is transparency for leadership? Like, like just telling everybody everything that's going on. I think a level of transparency is is important, but I also think there are things that it's like you you worked in in big companies before. For me as a leader, sometimes there's things that I will share with my inner circle, my my core uh, department heads or top executives that I won't share with the rest of the team because they don't need to know that. And I don't want to upset morale. And it's like two captains and of a ship talking about, okay, there's this big storm coming. There is a legitimate risk. It's okay to tell the crew, Hey, there's this storm. This is our plan, but maybe not tell them like, I'm pretty fucking worried about it too. Keep that to yourself because I think that's part of leadership. It's it's also, I mean, I'll, I'll tell a, a true story. Um, my uh, one of my um, relatives uh, at a winter break, I rented a house with my kids, and we were skiing in Lake Tahoe. And one of my re- female relatives had a total breakdown, lost their shit over something my twelve year old son said about about dating, like in jest. And this person went on this like tirade and, and like dumping all this bullshit on my 12 year old. And I had to like take, take this person aside and say, look, you can't be friends with, you can't share things to my kids. Like you would your friends, like they look up to you, like in a leadership position. And now you've just totally destroyed your credibility. You there's things you just can't discuss with, with kids that age. And I think that a lot of the similarities there with leadership, there are things that you can talk to and share your concerns with people that are at a, maybe a a top level, but you need as a a leader to, you know, to, to have that confidence and, and be transparent too. But, but there's no reason to kind of, like I said, to, to overshare it seems like there needs to be trust in transparency. So like yeah. the leader is telling me what he or she feels is best for me to know. And I need to trust that whatever they're not telling me, there's a reason. Yeah. Yeah. And the, the, this is true in the Sopranos also. So it's true in the mafia. Yeah. <laughs> the leadership yeah, skills of Tony Soprano. It, it, 
it always blows me away. And the military was a great leadership experience for me because I experienced the majority of my career, great leadership, but there was times when I, I served under terrible leaders. Uh, and I took that with me as a lesson learned when I was a leader, like I'm never going to publicly sh like shame somebody in front of a group. That's like leadership 101. It's, you take, if somebody has an issue, you, you pull them aside in private and, and handle it that way, not in front of a group. That's just never a good idea. Um, but if, you know, it, it never surprises me how many people are really just terrible leaders out there. <laughs> Like get in these yeah, positions. Yeah, well, of power. it's like anything. Like ninety-eight percent of anything are they suck. Like Trump, I'll be honest. Like Trump is a shit lead. Like he was not. He led by fear and intimidation, and that doesn't build loyalty and trust. And and you saw that. Like he could never, he could never keep building this like powerful group of people. They're always coming and going because he led by intimidation, fear, yelling at people, and. I mean, I, I just thought, I'm like, okay, there's, there's a reason everyone flips on him the minute they leave, leave his inner circle. He's, he's an interesting story because obviously that's almost smart a guy. Statement. Yeah. Smart guy. And, 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 and certainly like people are very black and white on him. Like people say, oh, he did nothing good as president. Or some people said he did everything good as everything he did was good. But like any president, he did some good things, some bad things, yeah. some things that didn't matter. He was effective in some ways. He was effective on trade policy with China. Obviously, there yeah. was a bunch of good deals with Israel. He might not have been effective on, I don't know, other things like uh, vaccines and, I, I don't know, corporate government. Uh, I think his all, his overuse of executive orders was insane. Um, yeah. You know, but this is getting into the nuances. But he also seemed to have a hard time giving credit to people underneath him. And that seems to be an important quality of leadership. Exactly, exactly. And look, I agree with you. I also think the byproduct of Trump, we wouldn't have the Me Too movement. We wouldn't have had the big strides we've had with racial equality, policing, right. if it were not for Trump being this like agitator, right? And um, yeah, I could go down the rabbit hole there. And I'm sure I'm a couple of things I've shared already are going to get me in trouble on social media. <laughs> no, no, because this is just this is just a basic fact. This is true yeah. for Millard Fillmore, John Adams, yeah. George Washington, Calvin yeah. Coolidge. This is true for every president. Some things they did were okay. Jimmy Carter, who a lot of people consider the worst president of the past hundred years, or Richard Nixon. Some things Richard Nixon did were good, and some were. <laughs> it got us out of the Vietnam War, but he, you know took us off the people have different opinions about taking us off the gold standard. Jimmy Carter got had the, you know, the Iran hostage situation and the coal miner strike. So there was this, there was this well-known phrase. There was this malaise in the country at the time, but he also was a really good guy. We got an example to see what a really good human being would be like as president, which yeah. is relatively rare. Yeah. But to your point earlier also about leadership, uh, America's foreign policy is, is one that I've, been talking about for ever since I left the military in 2006. There is, I've asked many people in the Senate and con Congress, what is our strategy in Afghanistan? Nobody could give me a straight answer. And when nobody knows what the hell is going on, you end up with America and Afghanistan 20 years. And now we pull out and it's a worse place than we found it. So that's that's the shame when if you're running a business and nobody knows what the mission of the company is that's that's a problem and so those are problems we have now in, in the american government i mean that same situation sort of happened in in vietnam but it only lasted like let's call it a little more than 10 years 10 11 years when there was serious military action and you're right afghanistan we are coming on 20 years and why don't any, why doesn't anybody acknowledge that we just did a really, like in mil, in all of US military history, have you ever seen anything like this? This is like a medieval war. This is like the 30 year war in the, in the middle ages. It's, it's the longest fought war in American history, at least. And I, I think close to a trillion dollars spent lives wasted. It's, it's really a shame. Like I, I served in Afghanistan for six months but I had purpose behind my deployment. You mentioned 
Viktor Frankl's Man's Search for Meaning. When I went over there, we had a very clear mission. We were to destroy the terrorist training camps. We did that, and we should have come home and left Afghanistan, but we stayed, and then it just drifted into like nobody knew what the hell we're doing, and then it turns into 20 years of, of war, and and then the incentives are all out of whack, right? The, I could spend hours talking about the, the defense companies and all the incentives and lobbying that kept us spending a trillion dollars in Afghanistan. And, and it, in the problem is war is terrible. I, you know, I, I've witnessed um, a lot of terrible things in my deployment, but I can sleep good at night because I had purpose behind that deployment. But after 2004, people deploying to Afghanistan had no purpose. And now they're coming back and having major issues because they can't kind of rationalize what they've seen and what they've done. And now we have this massive transition of military service members to civilian life who are dealing with serious, serious issues. And I did a, we did a uh, article on SOFRIP. The data shows that if a veteran enters the VA system, he is a he instantly become he or she instantly becomes at higher risk of suicide so the va is like killing people but that's how bad the situation at the va is with the bureaucracy and the it's just a total disaster and i i don't think it can be fixed i think you have to just get rid of the organization and private send these people to private health care but yeah we should do a podcast on, on foreign policy <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I would I would love to. We could take like 10 yeah. different aspects of foreign policy, whether it's these various wars or whether there's kind of what we're doing in Syria or other countries or other or also there's countries where we aren't involved militarily where maybe we should we're we're smaller insignificant strategic companies strategic countries where there's genocides happening where we're not involved yeah. at all. And then there's yep. trade policy, then there's the policy of our our currency, then there's policy about um, immigration and <laughs> it'd be fascinating to do a, a podcast like that. We should totally do it. I would love to, because no one talks about how America created the refugee crisis in Europe. We destabilized the Northern part of the Middle East with the Iraq pullout. We kicked off war, civil war in Syria. We saw the rise of ISIS and now this massive flow of refugees into Europe. The EU is trending towards open border. Now it's going closed border. They're putting up fences and, and trying to like, you know, yell at each other who's going to deal with with the refugee issue. So, and then Libya, right? We just we got rid of Gaddafi and destabilized that. That's a failed state to this day ever since. And it's like, what what's the point? Like, what do we do this for? You know? Yeah, the it's whole the whole Arab Spring, which seemed very kind of revolutionary and like there would be freedoms. It actually freedom seemed to reverse, even in countries like Egypt, where the Arab Spring kind of started. Just things have gotten worse and not better, or or at yeah. least they haven't gotten better. I don't know if they've gotten worse, but um, yeah, no, that would be an interesting. I'll bring <laughs> my interesting uh, thing. My Harvard Business School classmate Mohammed is he he runs a big shipping company in Egypt, but he would be a fascinating person to talk to about it. Yeah, I'm always fascinated by how much money is there at the top? Like people talk about income inequality in the US, but if you're like just a friend of the president, you're gonna get, I don't, I'm not saying this about your friend Mohammed, but like yeah. Hosni Mubarak's son got the deal to pave the roads. <laughs> so imagine if you get the deal to pave every road in a country and you don't have to do anything. You just <laughs> give Sum the deal to a big construction company, the Bin Laden family or whatever, yeah. it's a, who owns a big construction company and you take a 10% cut. Exactly, exactly. <laughs> so, yeah, well, so, so, so maybe that could be the topic, like maybe Finn gets into corporate finance at some point. He, he tries to be an investment well, banker. <laughs> the book too, actually we deal with, there's a very wealthy uh, capitalist kind of bad guy in book two. We deal with a lot of this what we're talking about now, just, just now in book two. I can't wait. I can't wait. This is going to be a 30 book series. This is your Jack Reacher. I hope yeah. for your sake, because it sounds like you love it. I hope for your sake, this becomes your full career. You and John, you Thanks. should do this. You should make the TV series. Uh, uh, you know, there'll be different writers and producers for that. I'm sure, but hopefully you'll, yeah. you'll, you'll be involved or at least you'll be involved financially, but you should just keep 
turning out these books. You're, you're, you're finding your voice. The first book is great, which is a surprise because a lot of first books in series <laughs> are not so good. And you only find out about the series on book 12 when the, when the author finds his voice and the characters really have life infused into them. But your characters have, have a lot of life. They're so interesting. Finn is interesting because he's not just a carbon copy of the of Jason Bourne. I mean, he's he's Jason Bourne plus Jack Reacher plus Brandon Webb and other things. <laughs> yeah. So he's he's a really interesting character. He's his personality is different from the 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 typical, you know, big moody ex-military guy who solves crimes. And and the the story is 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 really well plotted. I'm so impressed, Brandon. I know Thanks. you've been talking about this ever since I've known you. I've known you maybe 10 years. Ever since I've known you, you've been talking yeah. about doing this. You did it and like how you do everything, you you kicked ass and it was and it was <laughs> thoughtful and it was great. Thanks. And and yeah. let me just read uh I read this in the in the intro, but I mean for to have Lee Child say sensationally good, an instant classic, maybe an instant legend. That is just great yeah. for someone like yeah. that to say that. And then I saw some, uh, so Brad Thor, who's been on the podcast a couple of times, he said, an absolutely amazing thriller, still fear comes in hot and never slows down. Exciting, action-packed and twisty from stem to stern. This will be one of the hottest books of the summer. And people should know, Brad Thor doesn't need to write blurbs for people to know his name, which is a good strategy if you want people to know your name, write a lot of blurbs. Brad Thor and Lee Child are the best thriller writers on the planet. For them to read your book and say this, that's no fooling around. Like, that's really good. So congratulations on that as well. Thank you. And it, it means a lot because it. I, I have a great friend and my nonfiction editor at St. Martin's Press, but Mark, he told me not to do the book. He's like, you're a nonfiction guy. Stick to nonfiction. And, and, and it just goes to show you, like, you got to, if you believe in something, you should you should pursue it because there's a lot of naysayers out there, right? So a lot of people right. told me I was crazy for this. You know what the mistake they make is? I, I was because and I know look, you know we've had a lot of conversations both on the podcast and just at dinner or whatever about writing books and writing fiction. You didn't want to be a best-selling novelist. You wanted to write this story. You want yeah. you wanted the process of writing this story. I think too many people are hooked on, oh, he's just doing this because he wants to make a lot of money or he wants to um, be a novelist or be on a, have a TV series made from his books. You, you can't want to be something. You have to want to do something. And I really feel you wanted to do this story, not just be a novelist. And that's that's the distinction. A hundred percent. And I had no intention of writing a series. It just happened. And it was because I brought this story to life with John and, and uh, yeah. And now all these other doors have opened up for us. So um, I'm just grateful to have, have John as a collaborator because he's, he's made me a much better writer and, and we've got something special. So I'm, I'm pretty excited you, about you've, it. You've written a lot of great books together too. So well, Brandon, thanks once again for your 80th time coming on the podcast. Great book. Thanks again. Thanks, James. Want the same expert advice you get from the pros in the store while shopping online at DiscountTire.com? Meet Treadwell, your personal online tire guide that matches you with the perfect tire for your vehicle. Get your best match in one minute or less with Treadwell by Discount Tire.